Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Sneha Shrestha, who runs an amazing nonprofit in Nepal, which focuses on community dogs and farmed animals and veganism. I particularly love interviews that prove what we already know, that caring for animals and not eating them are worldwide movements. It is so strange to me that people eat animals. (laughs) I just want to throw that out there. That is a bizarre reality. I agree with the sentiment that I, I really love it when we interview somebody and it's just a reminder that we are everywhere. I mean, we're not all exactly the same and we have come from different cultures and and I'm sure some approaches are different, but really the general impulse, it's it's everywhere and and we're part of an important movement. But it is bizarre that the thing we're fighting is like eating animals. Yeah. Like, who who thought it up? Well, I have to tell you, you're making me think of this book that I'm reading. I know I was talking to you about it. I need to talk about it, even though I'm not done with it yet, but it is currently boggling my mind. And I told you, you have to read it. And if you're listening to this... Yeah, no, I had already bought it. And and now I buy many books that I don't read. I I admit it. I have a problem. But uh, I, I really do intend to read this one. Okay. So this is called The Vegan, and it is a novel by Andrew Lipstein. And we we first heard about it because I think the New York Times did a review of it, an excellent review. Yeah, this is not a nothing book. This is not like an animal rights movement kind of, uh, and nobody else has heard of it book. Yeah, it was reviewed in the New York Times book review. And so I'm listening, for those of you who are, are audiobook people like me, I'm listening to it. It is really, really well performed. And it is, you know, I, I kind of knew what it was about, but... Uh, it's basically about this guy, Herschel Kane, who has a hedge fund and he has a morality crisis because he does something as a joke. By the way, this is all like on the back cover, so I'm not giving there are no spoilers here, but he does something that he thinks is light and as a joke and it winds up resulting in possibly someone's death. And it causes him to have a complete and total morality crisis about everything he's doing. And and again, I'm probably halfway done, maybe a little more, but I he, he has a morality crisis and he winds up seeing animals completely differently. And it's because he has this friend who is a vegetarian. All right, yeah, like, I think we're going into too much detail here. All right. So the the point is that like, Everything he is suddenly saying is what we've been all saying for like 20 years. The annoying thing is that the the guy is sort of a bro. Like he's sort of like a cis, white, privileged, rich dude. I think that's good. It's great. It's great. But all I'm saying is that like I'm annoyed, even though this is... Even though this is fiction, I'm like, oh, okay, so a dude says it and like everyone listens, you know, so I'm I'm totally reacting to the reality of a illusion. But yes, of course, it's fantastic that this book is out there. So I'm just going to talk about this one scene. This is not a spoiler because meaning it's not a spoiler to the plot at all. It is just a scene. So if you want to fast forward, go ahead. But it's really not going to give anything tremendous away at all. Anyway, so when he gives up meat, he goes downstairs to his kitchen and he takes all of his meat and animal products out of his fridge and freezer and puts them in a bag and throws the bag out. And the next day he sees that the dog who's like chained outside across the street is like flipping out because of course the dog is smelling the meat. And so it winds up being the scene where the guy who goes vegan, Herschel, has sort of this confrontation with the dog's person and winds up just talking about like, how how he kind of has a break. He's like, why would you care about him but not uh, the animals you eat? And and he he like was looking at these PETA videos and he's sort of having a mental breakdown. But there's so much that I I'm like, yep, this is a story. This is a page out of my book, out of my life. And I just you have to read it because I need to discuss it with you. I don't know how it ends yet, so maybe we'll finish talking. Oh, better about end it. well. 
I, I mean, if, if it went that far and then had a bad ending, that would be very bad. Yeah, it's but he, there's so much like he he's walking down the street and he sees animals and and he even breaks. All right, it. No, no, you're you're giving away. I think you're giving away too much. I'm not giving away too much. He's like sees zoo animals, different everything, and he's like, how could I have been ignoring this? How did this, this? book it's get written? Like, how did it get published? Like, what's going is, on? I'm, this is see. This is the moment I needed. I needed someone else to be like, what planet are we living on? That this is a New York Times bestseller. Like. I kind of, I have no idea if the author is vegan. I tend to doubt it just because I doubt it. No real reason. But I like want to interview him, Andrew Lipstein. I want to know what kind of research did you do? Yeah, we should, we should totally try. Well, let's finish the book and make okay. sure it doesn't have a horrible ending. Yeah. And then then we'll we'll give it a whirl. I'm so excited for you to do this, for you to read this, Marianne, and, and our listeners as well. But since you haven't yet, I guess we can move on in topic. <laughs> so Before you so, give away every detail. And then you won't believe what happened then. No, all right, I'll stop. So w- you pulled out a couple articles that we were going to chat about. So the uh, where do we want to start here? I, they're all kind of on the same theme. And I just think, I, I mean, we'll put links to them in in the, you know, the show notes. Show notes, yeah. And I think they're worth reading. One of them, unfortunately, is in Past Company and it's behind a paywall. But the other two are in Sentient Media. And I, they sort of talk about this in, in Rising Anxieties too, but but it's really interesting. And you know how we've all been talking about how things are going so badly in the plant-based meat movement. And, you know, people have theorized as to why. Fox's Kenny Torella talked about the how, how it, there was a sales bump during the pandemic when everything came out, but then the products, you know, weren't as good and there was inflation and blah, blah, blah. And apparently... Brian Cateman has written something that I kind of, you know, have been saying that it's just, you know, normal for a new industry, you know, to get come in as a real big fad and then uh, and then die down. And I, I liken it to when the Internet came out, there were 10 gazillion sites that uh, came, started and they all went out of business except for one, which was Amazon. And that's all we need is one that's as big as Amazon and et cetera, et cetera. And people have uh, have written as to why. But of course, according to these articles and not surprising that, you know, this is the, the meat industry is fighting furiously also using uh, Rick Berman, uh, the Center for Consumer Freedom, you know, the guy who likes to destroy everything. And Frank Mitloiner, uh, the, the scientist who we're always talking about that uh, you know, works for the industry. And they're just doing everything they can to, to destroy these products. Uh, and, you know, the thing that's really worked is the idea that they're extremely processed. So people have this idea that, oh my God, look at all these ingredients. I shouldn't eat this. If they looked at everything else in their supermarket cart, it would have just as many pro- ingredients. And the reason, you know, meat is bad for you just because it doesn't have a whole bunch of different ingredients doesn't mean a whole lot of different ingredients, and not to mention suffering, didn't go into that animal. It's just that you never get to know what they are. Uh, right. So, you know, I could go on and on and on, but but it's just interesting to read how unbelievably hard they have been working to to take these products out. So, so you know, the, like, I just think sometimes with people's theories of change, you know, I've been thinking a lot about theories of change, that, uh, that there's this idea that you can think about what you're going to do. And then you can think about it, it'll be this successful. We talk about the tipping point and, and uh, you know, we have to reach this many people. And then, and, and like one of the pieces that you can leave out is the fact that they're going to fight back. <laughs> right. This is not going to be just us doing something. They're going to fight. They're very, very powerful. And, uh, you know, when I talk more about that in Rising Anxiety today, so if you're interested in this topic, catch that too, because they're very, very powerful and they could win. We got to keep fighting. This reminds me so much of what's happened with dairy, especially with like the dairy industry being behind so many of the anti-soy studies. If you look closer, the dairy industry is is the one funding so many of the so many of the press junkets that are trashing veganism. I, I, it makes me think of how 
the dairy trade associations were the ones that were asking the FDA to ban terms like soy milk and almond milk and hemp milk and oat milk. Yeah, the labeling wars have been, an, yeah, just another piece of this, exactly. Right, exactly, exactly. And uh, the, saying that they violate the FDA's legal definition of milk, which is ridiculous. But, you know, you're right. I actually had not thought about that for some reason. It's not like I thought otherwise. It just didn't really enter my consciousness. Like, of course, this is going to be another uphill climb. Of course, they're going to succeed. They're going to fight. Well, and they're going to succeed to some extent because people want to have reason to believe that it's unhealthy. And, you know, it just reminds me also of like when someone doesn't like a particular vegan cheese or something and therefore think that all thinks that all vegan cheese is disgusting. And I'm like, do you like all cow cheese they're like no 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 no. there's some that's really bad and i'm like oh okay but you haven't like thrown that under the bus completely like you've thrown veganism under the bus completely like it's very frustrating very frustrating yeah and another thing that one of these articles points out which isn't so much about what the industry is doing is that we also you know tend to think it's going to be too easy even without them fighting back i mean (laughs) if everything was even like the good food institute you know is always saying that we just have to be able to uh, compete on price, taste, and convenience. And that's and as soon as we can, we'll win. And of course, we're probably competing on taste. But price, we're not there yet. And, and maybe convenience, I don't know. It seems like these foods are fairly convenient. They kind of did get to be everywhere. But price is huge. But the other thing is, is it's not just price, taste, and convenience. That's a much too, according to this article in Sentient Media, a much too simplistic analysis. Yes, we definitely need to compete on price, taste, and convenience. But changing what people eat is more complicated than that. It's psychologically complicated. And there's just a lot more to be done. And, you know, it's it's not going to just happen unless somebody does it. Well, we are going to link to these articles if you want to take part in the conversation, feel free to. But for now, I think we should get to our our interview because I'm excited to hear what's going on in on another part of the planet. And and by the way, the though Sneha is completely fluent in English, some of you may have trouble understanding uh, her accent depending upon how familiar you are with South Asian accents. So just to make sure no one misses this interview, we will provide the recording of the interview with a voiceover by Mansi Bangwate immediately following Rising Anxieties. And thank you to Mansi. And let's get to that interview. Sneha Shrestha is a prominent animal advocate and vegan activist based in Nepal. She is the founder of Sneha's Care, a nonprofit committed to protecting farmed animals and community dogs from cruelty through rescues, welfare initiatives, and education. To date, Sneha's Care has rescued over 15,000 animals as part of its mission to create a society that treats animals humanely. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Moran's Main Street Vegan Academy has been training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators since 2012 and inspiring vegan businesses from bakeries to B&Bs to cowboy boots. The faculty draws from the best and the brightest in the vegan universe. Marianne and I have taught the animal rights and animal law class from the very beginning and will be a part of the upcoming cohort live on Zoom starting September 9th. Check out this unparalleled program at MainStreetVegan.com. And because you're an Our Hen House listener, use the code KINDNESS15 to save 15% on tuition. That's MainStreetVegan.com. And use the code KINDNESS15 with a capital K to save 15% on tuition. Welcome to Our Hen House, Sneha. Namaste. Thank you so much for inviting me. We're so excited to be talking to you because we really like to find out what's going on with animals all over the world. And we, of course, live on different sides of the world. And you do an amazing range of work with different animals and with many different types of animals. But I'd like to start with dogs, who I think, you know, are a little bit at the heart of the work you do. And particularly, you do a lot of work with street dogs. And before we get to talking about your shelter... Can you just tell us about what the situation is for street dogs in Kathmandu? Because 
it's different here. I'm not sure it's better, <laughs> believe me, but it's different because we don't ha- really have street dogs in the States. So tell us who they are and how they live. Yeah, the condition and the situation of community dogs, like we call, we don't call it street dogs, we call the community dogs. And the situation of community dogs in Nepal are not as good as they should be. Many cases of hit and run incidents, skin disease, abuse and abandonment are witnessed frequently. People often show carelessness and ignore such cases. However, thanks to our program, uh, people have become more responsible towards these dogs. They have started providing food, water, necessary medicines. Our shelter has come into existence as a result of these cases. Uh, we rescue in critical condition and provide long-term care for those who can no longer survive on the streets. Currently, we have 200 dogs along with other farm animals such as pigs, goats, cows, and buffaloes in our shelter. About dogs, how do you decide who should come to your shelter and who you want to help while they're still out uh, in the community? Uh, every day we uh, receive numerous calls by people like uh, animal lovers who send us messages. So what we do is we decide with videos and photos, we decide if the cases is critical, uh, we send our team to rescue the dog. Otherwise, what we do is doing mobile treatment. And uh, what we do is like we send our mobile treatment team just to check the dogs. And why we started mobile treatment is we want to... Uh, make community responsible. So uh, our team go there and they are the one who decide in the street that if like dog uh, needs uh, shelter care or uh, one immobility. Do you find that, I think you mentioned that this was the case, but I'd just like to go back to it, that attitudes in the community among people have shifted regarding the dogs. I'm just wondering in particular, now that your shelter exists and your organization exists, I think people can be more sympathetic towards animals if they have a way to help them. Do you think people have become more sympathetic to dogs in general? I know people are different and some people really care and some people don't. That's this case everywhere. But as a general matter, is is there more sympathy towards the dog? Unfortunately, there are only a few individuals like who genuinely care for and have a deep concern for the well-being of these animals. For a significant number of people, the fate of these animals is of political importance and they may not care whether these animals live or die. This lack of empathy or indifference towards these animals can stem of various factors, such as the lack of awareness about animal welfare issues, cultural norms, or personal beliefs. Additionally, some people might prioritize their own needs and interests over the welfare of animals they consider to be outside their sphere of responsibility. However, it's important to note that there are also many compassionate individuals who actively work towards improving the lives of street animals. These animals lovers dedicate their time, resources, and efforts to provide food, shelter, and medical care to those in need. They recognize the instant value of all living beings and understand that animals deserve compassion and care regardless of their status of circumstance. Promoting awareness, education, and compassion towards animals is essential to gradually change the society attitudes of foster a more empathic approach to animal welfare. The description of how people vary is typical of almost anywhere. Uh, it certainly sounds familiar to me. Let's talk a little bit about the shelter. I started the shelter with the welfare of dogs. Currently, like in the shelter, we have 170 dogs and other farm animals. And uh, I started with the welfare of dogs. I later realized that not only is the welfare of dogs enough. So that's the reason I started uh, Prime Animals Welfare as well. Tell us what the shelter is like. How many animals you have, where they live. Tell us about it. If I were to come visit your shelter, what would I see? Like my shelter is full with dogs. Like we have around 170 dogs and six pigs. Like recently I have lost one. I have lost one pig. And I have two buffaloes and 17 abandoned cows. And uh, shelter is full with, uh, you know, like community dogs. Like we don't call over here street dogs. I always request people to call community dogs. We have 22 team members like in the center who are working for those animals. Among them, like I have eight technical teams, one veterinarian and uh, seven 
pet technicians. Beside that, like we have cleaners, dog catchers, dog handlers, ambulance drivers, and the people to look after the farm animals as well. So yeah, like uh, there is more than 170 dogs living in the center with other animals. Am I right that you are in the process of moving? Yeah, of course. Like I'm looking for the land. The reason is when I started like uh, in 2015, there wasn't any house. So now like my shelter is surrounded by 32 households. The people who live over there, they started complaining against us. And they already complained in the ward office uh, against us. And though they want us to move from there. So... We look at the shelter, the problem in, but main problem is uh, because this dog, like whom I rescued, you know, they all are from the street. And what I think is like, this is not only my responsibility. As a responsible person, like an animal lover, like I'm doing like what I can. And I have been doing this uh, from last eight years. But what I think is like, this is the responsibility of government. So I'm keep asking with the government not to provide me the land, but uh, they don't want to listen to anything. Like uh, so many times I uh, visited government offices and what they think is uh, like, this is my problem, not their problem. So at the moment, like my, you know, I mean, the problem is like to relocate the center, but I don't know where to move. And the people like who lives around the center, so they want me to go from there. I don't have other option, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry that's happening. That sounds very hard. I really want to go back also to your work for farmed animals, because speaking of the government, the work that you're doing for farmed animals, if I understand correctly, isn't just that you have some in the shelter, but you're also trying to get laws or regulations to provide for better treatment. Is that right? Yes, like you're right. Like even I started with the welfare of dogs. I later realized that not only is the welfare of dogs enough, but farm animals are also suffering equally. That their long distance life transport of buffaloes is done in a inhumane way. I myself, you know, that I myself traveled in that truck to check how these animals are transported. 22, 24 hours long journey in a congested space. Like you can imagine their life where no food, water is provided. They are not even allowed to sit down. Uh, their nose and tails are tied up so tightly that they bleed through their nose. They have been, uh, they have broken uh, their horns, legs, and wounds all over their body. You can imagine the life, their life, you know. The live animal transfusion criteria was implemented, uh, I think, like 15, 16 years ago, but still there is no enforcement to these regulations and standards. Similarly, the working animals are forced to carry loads which are out of their capacity, resulting in the joint bone problem, eye problem, like you can imagine, like there are lots of problems. The cow farming and the cruelty, they face by being abandoned and calves being killed after birth and all the abuse and exploitation made me start the advocacy of farm animals. Uh, now, even in 2019, we registered a case uh, to the Supreme Court and as a result, the case was in our favor. The court has ordered the implementation of the animal welfare draft as soon as possible. And uh, we have also uh, started to implement the farm animal standards in different provinces. We are not only working in, uh, uh, like, you know, like uh, Kathmandu, but we are working in all the seven provinces uh, uh, to uh, the welfare of uh, these farm animals. But it should not just be limited to paperwork. So that's the reason we are lobbying with the government uh, to enforce it in a more serious and effective way. Yeah, no, it sounds like very challenging and the same challenges that we face here. I know that, you know, obviously most people who care deeply about animals and who care about farm animals are also interested in encouraging people not to eat them, which would really help in improving their treatment. And I know that you, part of your work is to advocate for a plant-based diet. And I'm just curious, I don't know a lot about the Nepalese diet. I don't know what people eat. Is this a huge transition from what people usually eat? Or does the diet that most people eat already have a lot of vegetable foods in it? Yeah, of course, like there is a wide range of traditional Nepali vegan food that Nepali people eat rice and dal all the time. So if we remove uh, dairy product from our uh, daily food, like it's already vegan. As a uh, Part of the vegan project, like, um, 
we focus on educating women and students in various schools and localities about the benefits of plant-based diet. In addition to providing valuable information, we also offer, like, uh, after the session, like, we also offer vegan snacks and meals uh, to them. Uh, through our efforts, like, we have successfully transformed the mindset of many students and individuals, inspiring them to adopt a vegan lifestyle. And, uh, they seek not to only contribute to uh, personal health, but also uh, positively impact the environment and animal welfare. Uh, by showing the variety of uh, deliciousness of vegan alternatives, we demonstrate that uh, choosing plant-based options can be both nutritious and enjoyable. So our aim is to raise awareness about the positive impact of reducing the uh, consumption of animal products and encourage individual students and uh, to make more sustainable choice for themselves and the planet. Overall, our vegan project is making significant uh, change in promoting a plant-based lifestyle and uh, uh, fostering positive change among our participants. So how do people respond? I mean, especially since the food that people eat is not so far off from already being pl completely plant-based. Do you get a, a good response? Do people respond to these arguments and to the information that you give them in a positive way? And is there a, a move toward transitioning to a completely plant-based diet? In the study, it was very hard. When I started promoting veganism, people even like didn't know about the vegan world. And in Nepal, there are only few restaurants who have got vegan options now because of like our programs. And we're not only doing community outreach programs, only in the schools. And not only in the community. What we are doing is doing vegan safe trainings. We are training the safes from different hotels and restaurants to cook vegan food. So that's the reason people are changing. But in the start, like it was very hard when like we were talking about plant-based and veganism. People used to laugh at us, and they're saying, "Oh, like how like it's possible? You know, like uh, people can live without meat and dairy products." But the main thing is now people are changing and veganism is growing in Nepal. If you go to any restaurant, like I, I'm not saying like you will find vegan food in every restaurant, but there are few vegan restaurants now. And besides that, now people started talking about veganism. So I think that's the changes, you know. Yeah, that sounds very promising and similar to what's happening in other places as well. I mean, that's the attitude towards veganism. But do you find that attitudes towards animals... Specifically, the dogs, uh, since the community dogs are are such an important part of Nepal. But just animals in general, do you find that they're more or less favorable than in the past? Are things changing? Yeah, I started helping animals in 2015 when I started feeding the dogs in the street. People used to laugh at me. Oh, you are mad? Like, are you mad? I'm feeling that there are so many hungry people, uh, homeless people who are starving, who are looking for the food, and you are feeding the dogs. People are changing, you know? People are changing. And main thing is, if you learn all those things from your school, it was good. But the main problem, like, we don't have anything in our curriculum. We don't have to read about animal welfare. There is not even one subject or anything in our curriculum. So that's the reason no, what we're doing is uh, we're talking with the government. We're not asking them to put all those uh, veganism things uh, because definitely they will not listen. But what we're saying uh, them is like at least in curriculum, there should be some subjects uh, regarding animal welfare. So children will learn the comparison and to love animals from the childhood. Well, I'm sure that the work you're doing as well is helping people. Uh, you know, a lot of people want to have good attitudes towards animals, but if they can't do anything to help them, it shuts them down. And when they see that it's possible and you're making it possible to care about animals, they're more open to it. What about religion? What, is, what would you say is the role of religion in the way people see and treat animals? Yeah, if you talk about religion, because in Nepal, like, oh my God, there are so many different castes and different kinds of religions. And in every religion, like, there is good thing and bad thing as well. So, like, personally, as a vegan, what I'll say is, in my culture, I'm Srishta, okay? My surname is Srishta, so in my culture, there is few good things. But uh, if, if it comes to animals, like, Nepal is the only one country who worship animals. So we celebrate festivals, like, uh, we worship cows, crows, dogs, and Nepal is the only one country. But at the same time, one day, like, we worship the animals, and that's what they want to do is, like, throw hot water. Pour them vitamin, like we carve them with the knife, 
So I'm not saying without any, it's very hard for me to say that, you know, like there's so many religions where we see the people are cruel towards animals. They tear animals with their hand and they kill them with the teeth. And there's so many festivals in Nepal, like maybe you have heard about there is one festival in that festival. What uh, people do is they throw one goat in that river and there are 20, 30 people just to kill one goat. So you can imagine like their behavior towards animals. Yeah, religion is confusing everywhere, but hopefully there can be progress there as well as in other places. How about the government? I mean, I know you're having problems with the government regarding your, your shelter and and you want, understandably, for them to step up more. But what about other kinds of reforms? Would you say that the government is receptive uh, to working with animal advocates to improve conditions for animals in Nepal? It is very sad that work which should be done by the government, we're doing it from our side. We're trying our best to receive help and coordination from the government, but they are quite slow in the matter of animals. Uh, If it comes to humans, like they are very fast, but uh, when it comes to animals, they give less priority. Though there are uh, welfare standards made, it is not followed seriously. Uh, People have this mindset, you know, that uh, they are just animals. Why bother? In few of the campaigns like uh, anti-rabies, if, say, uh, if it comes to dogs like anti-rabies vaccination, spay uterine rescue, uh, rabies-suspected dogs, they coordinate with us. But in many, many cases, uh, such as the banning of long-distance live animal transportation, they still ignore the guidelines implemented because it's been more than 13, 14 years. Uh, there is welfare standard. Uh, they are not, not thinking to implement it. So yeah, uh, it is very difficult for us to coordinate with the government uh, in many cases. I, I know that you mentioned that you do some work with children. Do you think things are changing? Are, are children uh, who are growing up now more receptive to caring about animals than you've seen in the past? What we are doing, uh, we are going to the school, we are teaching the children, and more, more especially school children are being uh, educated about plant-based uh, about veganism and the benefits of plant-based diets, about compassion. Additionally, they are thought to be more compassionate towards animals through uh, video showing. And we saw the video, animal exploration and the origin of dairy products and meat. So where the meat comes from. Uh, these lessons no. are conducted within a 45-minute session. Moreover, even like we formed a compassion club, and if students are interested in learning more about plant-based compassion and veganism, like adopting this lifestyle to visit the farm animal sanctuary, like we even invite their parents to the, you know, how effective farm looks like, how they raise those cows, how they kill those animals, even like we take them to the slaughterhouse and different kind of farms. Yeah, no, it sounds like so many of the situations that you're facing are the same that everybody all over the world is facing. I'm so happy you were able to join us on our hen house today because it's so fascinating to find out what's happening in other parts of the world and to find out how it's different, but also to find out how it's so much the same and how, how much can be accomplished by people like you who, you know, deeply care about animals. You've put so much work into this. It's just unimaginable what you've created there in Kathmandu. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sneha. Thank you so If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties are rising. You know, they're fighting back and they're fighting back hard. I'm not going to deny it. It's a little scary. I like to think that every time they fight back, it's a sign of how scared they are. But, you know, sometimes they scare me because sometimes, you know, they're good. Well, they're not good. <laughs> they're good at what they do, which is trying to shove dead animals down everybody's throats. All right. 
This is from Stanford University. Study shows how the meat and dairy sector resists competition from alternative animal products. They are really ramping up the efforts. And unfortunately, there's this new study out of Stanford that is showing how meat and dairy industry lobbying has influenced government regulations and funding to stifle competition from alternative meat products with smaller climate and environmental impacts. Yeah, we kind of know what's happening, but it's nice to know that there's studies going on about it. This is going on in both the U.S. and and the EU, uh, and that's covered here. This is a quote from Simona Vallone, who's an Earth System Science Research Associate at Stanford. The lack of policies focused on reducing our reliance on animal-derived products and the lack of sufficient support to alternative technologies to make them competitive are symptomatic of a system still resisting fundamental changes. And ain't that the truth? You know, we see some progress on other environmental issues, not even remotely enough, but some. But, you know, when it comes to meat... Uh, you know, so the article points out that livestock production is the ag sector's largest emitter of methane, I mean, which we all know, of course, and I don't know enough about it, but it's an enormous, enormous problem. And it's just, and the ag sector is an enormous, enormous emitter uh, in general. It's also the main direct cause of tropical deforestation. Uh, well, I mean, cattle farming is also the main direct cause of tropical deforestation. Uh, we know that too. So, you know, they're, they're catching up to where we've been for years. And it says here that these researchers reviewed major agricultural policies from 2014 to 2020 that supported either the animal food product system or alternative technologies. And you can imagine the, the difference in funding. And they, of course, they found that uh, all the governments they studied um, consistently devoted most of their agricultural funding to livestock and feed production. They avoid highlighting food production sustainability dimensions in nutrition guidelines. Like, come on. And they also try to introduce regulatory hurdles and the, you know, the whole labeling war to the commercialization of meat alternatives, which, you know, are struggling. And this is why, you know, it's not an accident that these companies are struggling. All right, get the numbers. In the U.S., about 800 times more public funding and 190 times more lobbying money goes to animal source food products than alternatives. And in the EU, well, the, the, the public funding is even worse. 1,200 times more public funding goes to animal source food products. I mean, no wonder these foods can't compete. Not as much on the lobbying front in the EU, but, you know, I guess uh, lobbyists get richer in the U.S. I don't know. So the study does point out a few, quote-unquote, glimmers of hope. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, includes investments. And, you know, I think they were pretty small, but there were some in technical and financial assistance to support farmers and ranchers, implementing practices to reduce greenhouse emissions or sequester carbon. Very troubling that this includes ranchers. It's not, you know, this is going to be like the the methane capture, you know, which is not going to do it. It's not going to do it. It's nonsense. So, you know, I don't think that's such a big glimmer of hope. Uh, so, so they got to do this, as the article points out. They should craft legislation ensuring meat meat's price reflects its environmental costs. That would be nice, wouldn't it? All right, here another example. I know my stories today are are upsetting, but you know, hopefully it means they're getting upset too. A Texas dairy ranks among the state's biggest methane emitters, but don't ask the EPA or the state about it. You know, sometimes their anxieties rise and sometimes they are successful in getting policies that to quell their anxiety. And certainly this is one instance of that. They, you know, they get the they get the the government to hide their their nonsense and the harm they're doing. All right, this is an an analysis by Inside Climate News. You know, it's good that this is being covered by Inside Climate News. You know, the climate movement does seem to be catching up a bit. And it's regarding work by Climate Trace, which I think is the organization co-founded by um, Al Gore. And it shows that tracking cattle emissions site by site is doable, but that doesn't mean it's being done. You know, they, they started talking about some some dairy, and apparently dairy is becoming huge in Texas. 
Huge. So this is a North Dumas Farms um, in the in the northern edge of the Texas Panhandle. That's where North Texas is where this is really taking, dairy is really taking hold. You know, what are those cows going to do? Like, it's so hot there. Anyway, the dairy is permitted to hold up to 72,500 cows. So you can imagine. The article points out that methane's potency is extremely high. We know that. And it also has a very short lifetime, just remains in the atmosphere for 12 years compared to, you know, CO2 and, and, and other things. Those two factors combined mean that methane is where you can make the most progress fast. And obviously, if people had, don't realize now that we have to make some progress fast, like, well, I guess they don't, but, but you know, come on, the world, the world is burning. It's beyond that it's a large contributor. It's, it's an, also the place where the most opportunity exists. So this is the main point of the article. The EPA's Greenhouse Gas Reporting Program which was established in 2007. Nice to know that they were on it a few years ago. And it's, it, its purpose is to provide detailed accounting facility by facility on emissions from all sectors of the U.S. economy. Wow, that's great. It exempts agriculture. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, so Texas is even worse. The Texas Point Source Emissions Inventory, which, you know, surveys large industrial polluters, excludes greenhouse gases altogether. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The number of dairy, as I mentioned, North Texas is where we're really focused at the moment in this article because of dairy. The number of dairy cows increased by a whopping 3,500%. Not 3,500 cows. 3,500% from 1995 to 2015. Oh, but, you know, God forbid we should do anything about it. As you can tell, I'm trying to be indefatigably positive, but my anxieties, I think, are rising higher than theirs. Our, my last article that I'm going to be talking about is from our favorite, Amanda Radke, and she's talking about the Animal Agriculture Alliance's take on the recent Animal Rights and Vegan Conference. I forget the exact name of it. I'm sorry. She thinks they're outrageous. You'll be here, you'll be <laughs> thrilled to hear. The Animal Agriculture Alliance reports that speakers made it clear their vision is animal liberation, not promoting animal welfare. Yeah. That's you know, I heard like I hear the other side of it. There's too much animal welfare talk at that conference and in the animal rights movement, but not according to the Animal Agriculture Alliance. So yeah, that's exactly what I want to hear. And she has some quotes from people, all of which well, not all of which I like, but most of which I like. Karen Davis, we need to say that all animal agriculture is cruel and wrong. Yeah, exactly. She apparently thinks that all of these quotes are going to shock us, but I guess most of her readership is not me. According to the Animal Agriculture Alliance, a key theme of the conference was the desire to create a vegan world by 2026. 2026? <laughs> That's really... <laughs> That's pretty ambitious. Like, all right. Apparently, she said many activists had doubts. I hate, I hate to be one of the doubters, but 2026 does seem like does seem like a short deadline. And so, you know, some sympathetic comments from such as Melanie Joy, who's always sympathetic. We vegans carry a heavy burden. No matter how hard we work, we will likely never see the end of it. That doesn't sound like they think it's gonna happen by 2026. So I guess she was on the um uh, on the 2026. So really quick. I hope it's right. So the um, Animal Agriculture Alliance also reported speakers also focused on the use of, quote, undercover, unquote, videos and the media to damage the reputation of animal agriculture and reach their goals. Yeah. These quotes are direct from the horse's mouth, she says, so to speak. And it's quite clear that their intentions are not to negotiate or compromise, but to batter bully, harass, litigate, legislate, and destroy the reputations of animal-owning Americans. I would love to do that, but, you know, it, it doesn't seem like negotiation or compromise is, is available on either side, but I'd just love to get those animals out of there, whatever it takes. And that's it, this week's Rising Anxieties. Welcome to our hen house, Sneha. Namaste. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
We're so excited to be talking to you because we really like to find out what's going on with animals all over the world. And we, of course, live on different sides of the world. And you do an amazing range of work with different animals and with many different types of animals. But I'd like to start with dogs who I think, you know, are a little bit at the heart of the work you do. And particularly, you do a lot of work with street dogs. And before we get to talking about your shelter, can you just tell us about what the situation is for street dogs in Kathmandu? Because it's different here. I'm not sure it's better, <laughs> believe me, but it's different because we don't ha- really have street dogs in the States. So tell us who they are and how they live. Yeah, the condition and the situation of community dogs, like we call We don't call street dogs. We call them community dogs. And the situation of community dogs in Nepal are not as good as they should be. Many cases of hit-and-run incidents, skin disease, abuse, and abandonment are witnessed frequently. People often, so carelessness and ignorance of cases. However, thanks to our program, people have become more responsible towards these dogs. They have started providing food, water, necessary medicines. Our shelter has come into excess as a result of these cases. We rescue in critical condition and provide long-term care for those who can no longer survive on the streets. Currently, we have 200 dogs along with other farm animals such as pigs, goats, cows, and buffaloes in our center. About dogs, how do you decide who should come to your shelter and who you want to help while they're still out uh, in the community? Every day we receive numerous calls. There are people like animal lovers who send us messages. So what we do is we decide with videos and photos, we decide if the case is critical we send our team to rescue the dog. Otherwise, what we do is doing mobile treatment. And what we do is like, we send our mobile treatment team just to check the dogs. And why we started mobile treatment is we want to make community responsible. So our team go there and they are the one who decide in the street if like dog needs shelter, care, or one mobile treatment. Do you find that, I think you mentioned that this was the case, but I'd just like to go back to it, that attitudes in the community among people have shifted regarding the dogs. I'm just wondering in particular, now that your shelter exists and your organization exists, I think people can be more sympathetic towards animals if they have a way to help them. Do you think people have become more sympathetic to dogs in general? I know people are different and some people really care and some people don't. That's this case everywhere. But as a general matter, is is there more sympathy towards the dog? Unfortunately, there are only a few individuals who genuinely care for and have deep concern for the well-being of these animals. For a significant number of people, the fate of street animals is of little importance and they may not care whether these animals live or die. This lack of empathy or indifference towards the street animals can stem off various factors, such as the lack of awareness about animal welfare issues, cultural norms or personal beliefs. Additionally, some people might prioritize their own needs and interests over the welfare of animals they consider to be outside their sphere of responsibility. However, it's important to note that there are also many compassionate individuals who actively work toward improving the lives of the street animals. These animal lovers dedicate their time, resource, and efforts to provide food, shelter, and medical care to those in need. They recognize the instant value of all living beings and understand that animal deserves compassionate care regardless of their status of circumstance. Promoting awareness, education, and compassion toward animals is essential to gradually change the society attitudes to foster a more empathic approach to animal welfare. The description of how people vary is typical of almost anywhere. Uh, It certainly sounds familiar to me. Let's talk a little bit about the shelter. I started the shelter with the welfare of dogs. Already in the shelter, we have 170 dogs and other farm animals. And I started with the welfare of dogs. I later realized that not only is the welfare of dogs enough, so that's the reason I started farm animals welfare as well. Tell us what the shelter is like. How many animals you have, where they live, 
Tell us about it. Yeah, my shelter is full with dogs. We have around 170 dogs and six pigs. And I have two buffaloes and 17 abandoned cows. And the sanctuary is full with community dogs. We don't call them street dogs over here. I always request people to call community dogs. We have 22 team members in the shelter who are working for those animals. Among them, I have eight technicians, one veterinarian, and seven paid technicians. Beside that, we have cleaners, dog catchers, dog handlers, ambulance drivers, and the people to look after the farm animals as well. So yeah, there are more than 170 dogs living in the shelter with other animals. Am I right that you are in the process of moving? Yeah, of course. I'm looking for the land. The reason is when I started, like in 2015, there wasn't any houses. So now my shelter is surrounded by 32 households. The people who live over there, they started complaining against us and they already complained in the ward office against us and they want us to move from there. But main problem is because these dogs whom I rescued, you know, they are all from the street. And what I think is this is not only my responsibility. As a responsible person, an animal lover, I'm doing what I can. And I've been doing this for the last eight years. But what I think is, this is the responsibility of government. So I keep asking the government to provide me the land, but they don't want to listen to anything. So many times I've visited government offices and what they think is that this is my problem, not their problem. So at the moment, my main problem is to relocate the shelter, but I don't know where to move. And the people who live around the shelter want me to go from there, but I don't have another option, you know? Yeah, I'm sorry that's happening. That sounds very hard. I really want to go back also to your work for farmed animals, because speaking of the government, the work that you're doing for farmed animals, if I understand correctly, isn't just that you have some in the shelter, but you're also trying to get laws or regulations to provide for better treatment. Is that right? Yes, you're right. Even though I started with the welfare of dogs, I later realized that not only is the welfare of dogs enough, but farm animals are also suffering equally. That the long-distance live transport of buffalo is done in an inhumane way. You know, I myself travel in that truck to check how these animals are transported. 22, 24 hours long journey in a congested space. You can imagine their life where no food or water is provided there. They're not even allowed to sit down. Their nose and tails are tied up so tightly that they bleed through their nose. They have broken horns, legs, and wounds all over their body. The life animal transportation criteria was implemented, I think, like 15, 16 years ago. But still, there is no enforcement to these regulations and standards. Similarly, the working animals are forced to carry loads which are out of their capacity, resulting in joint, bone problem, eye problem. You can imagine there are lots of problems. The confinement and the cruelty they face might be evident and calves being killed after birth. And all the abuse and exploitation made me start the advocacy of farm animals. In 2019, we registered a case to the Supreme Court and the result of the case was in our favor. The court has ordered the implementation of the animal welfare draft as soon as possible. And we have also started to implement the farm animal standards in different provinces. We're not only working in Kathmandu, but we are working in all the seven provinces for the welfare of these farm animals. But it should not just be limited to paperwork. So that's the reason we're lobbying with the government to enforce it in a more serious and effective way. Yeah, no, it sounds like very challenging and the same challenges that we face here. I know that, you know, obviously most people who care deeply about animals and who care about farm animals are also interested in encouraging people not to eat them, which would really help in improving their treatment. And I know that you, part of your work is to advocate for a plant-based diet. And I'm just curious, I don't know a lot about the Nepalese diet. I don't know what people eat. Is this a huge transition from what people usually eat? Or does the diet that most people eat already have a lot of vegetable foods in it? Yeah, of course. 
There is a wide range of traditional Nepali vegan food. Nepali people eat rice and dal all the time. So if you remove dairy product from our daily food, like it's already vegan. So as part of the vegan project, we focus on educating women and the students in various schools and localities about the benefits of plant-based diets. In addition to providing valuable information, after the session, we also offer vegan snacks and meals. To them, we have successfully transformed the mindset of many students and individuals, inspiring them to adopt a vegan lifestyle. This not only contributes to personal health, but also positively impacts the environment and animal welfare. By showing the variety and deliciousness of vegan alternatives, we demonstrate that choosing plant-based option can be both nutritious and enjoyable. So, our aim is to raise awareness about the positive impact of reducing the consumption of animal products and encourage individuals and students to make a more sustainable choice for themselves and the planet. Overall, our vegan project is making significant change in promoting a plant-based lifestyle and fostering positive change among our participants. So how do people respond? I mean, especially since the food that people eat is not so far off from already being completely plant-based. Do you get a, a good response? Do people respond to these arguments and to the information that you give them in a positive way? And is there a, a move toward transitioning to a completely plant-based diet? In the start, it was very hard. When I started promoting veganism, people did not know about the vegan word. And in Nepal, there are only few restaurants who have got vegan options. Now, because of our programs, we're not only doing like community outreach program in schools and not only in the community. What we're doing is we're doing vegan chef trainings. We are training the chefs from different hotels and restaurants to cook vegan food. So that's the reason people are changing. But in starting, it was very hard. When we're talking about plant-based and vegan, the community people used to laugh at us. And they're saying, oh, how is it possible? People can't live without meat and dairy product. But the main thing is now people are changing and veganism is growing. And in Nepal, if you go to any restaurant, I'm not saying you'll find vegan food in every restaurant, but there are few restaurants now. And beside that, now people started talking about veganism. So I think that's the changes, you know? Yeah, that sounds very promising and similar to what's happening in other places as well. I mean, that's the attitude towards veganism. But do you find that attitudes towards animals... Specifically, the dogs, uh, since the community dogs are are such an important part of Nepal. But just animals in general, do you find that they're more or less favorable than in the past? Are things changing? Yeah. I started helping animals in 2015. When I started feeding the dogs in the street, people used to laugh at me. Oh, you're mad. Like, are you mad? You are forgetting that there are so many hungry people and homeless people are starving while you're looking for the food and you're feeding the dogs. People are changing, you know, people are changing. And the main thing is if you learn all those things from your schools, it was good. But the main problem is we don't have anything in our curriculum. We don't have to read about animal welfare. There is not even one subject or anything in our curriculum. So that's the reason now what we are doing is we're talking with the government. We're not asking them to put all those veganism things because they'll not listen. What we're saying to them is like, at least in the curriculum, there should be some subject regarding animal welfare. So children will learn compassion and to love animals from childhood. Well, I'm sure that the work you're doing as well is helping people. You know, a lot of people want to have good attitudes towards animals, but if they can't do anything to help them, it shuts them down. And when they see that it's possible and you're making it possible to care about animals, they're more open to it. What about religion? What, is, what would you say is the role of religion in the way people see and treat animals? If you talk about religion, because in Nepal, like, my God, there are so many different castes and different kinds of religions. And in every religion, there is a good thing and bad thing as well. So like personally as a vegan, what I'll say is in my culture, I'm Shreshta. Okay, my name is Shreshta. 
So in my culture, there is a few good things. But if it comes to animals, Nepal is the only one country who worships animals. We celebrate festivals like we worship cows, crows, dogs, and Nepal is the only country. But at the same time, one day, like, we'll see the animals and just what they want to do is like throw hot water, like we cut them with a knife. So I'm not saying without any... It's very hard for me to say that, you know? Like, there are so many religions where we see people are cruel toward animals. They tear animals with their hand and they kill them with their teeth. And there's so many festivals in Nepal. Maybe you have heard about, there's one festival. In that festival, what people do is they throw one goat in the river and there are 20, 30 people just to kill one goat. So you can imagine their behavior towards animals. Yeah, religion is confusing everywhere, but... Hopefully there can be progress there as well as in other places. How about the government? I mean, I know you're having problems with the government regarding your your shelter and, and you want, understandably, for them to step up more. But what about other kinds of reforms? Would you say that the government is receptive uh, to working with animal advocates to improve conditions for animals in Nepal? It is very sad that work, which should be done by the government, we're doing it from our side. We're trying our best to receive help and coordination from the government, but they're quite slow in the matter of animals. If it comes to humans, they're very fast. And when it comes to animals, they give less priority. Though there are welfare standards made, it is not followed seriously. People have this mindset that they're just animals. Why bother? In view of the campaigns, like, say if it comes to dog, like anti-rabies vaccinations, pay-neuter, or rescue rabies-suspected dogs, they coordinate with us. But in many cases, such as the banning of long-distance live animal transportation, they still ignore the guidelines implemented because it's been more than 13, 14 years. There are welfare standards, but they're not implementing it. So yeah, it's very difficult for us to coordinate with the government in many cases. I know that you mentioned that you do some work with children. Do you think things are changing? Are are children who are growing up now more receptive to caring about animals than you've seen in the past? Yeah, of course. What we're doing is we are going to the schools. We're teaching the children and especially school children are being educated about plant-based, about veganism and the benefits of plant-based diet, about compassion. Additionally, they're taught to be more compassionate towards animals through video showing. And we show them video of animal exploitation and the origin of dairy products and meat. So where the meat comes from. These lessons are conducted within a 45-minute session. Moreover, we formed the Compassion Club. And if students are interested in learning more about the plant-based compassion and veganism, like adopting this lifestyle, we visit the farm animal sanctuary. We even invite their parents too, so they know how a factory farm looks like, how they raise those cows, how they kill those animals. Even like we take them to the slaughterhouse and different kind of farms. Yeah, no, it sounds like so many of the situations that you're facing are the same that everybody all over the world is facing. I'm so happy you were able to join us on our hen house today because It's so fascinating to find out what's happening in other parts of the world and to find out how it's different, but also to find out how it's so much the same and how how much can be accomplished by people like you who, you know, deeply care about animals. You've put so much work into this. It's just unimaginable what you've created there in Kathmandu. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sneha. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. 
the Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic Our Hen House brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 